But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 17 of the REACH podcast. Today I'm chatting to Sammy Mansfield, who is a cancer exercise specialist and founder for Cancer Wellness for Life, which is a program out in Kansas where she does a couple of different things. So part of her job is she works with hospitals and institutions to deliver educational material to both patients and survivors and the staff themselves to give them material to then deliver to patients as well. So some really cool stuff in terms of just being in the industry, establishing relationships with hospitals and institutions. And then she also runs uh, what's called BUILD, which is a functional program in a CrossFit gym in Kansas. So obviously, CrossFit is really, you know, controversial for, you know, the injury rates and all that type of stuff. But uh, I think CrossFit has come on a lot since its inception, and particularly in the last three to five years, just in terms of the standard there or they require of their trainers and the programming they deliver and just their emphasis on community and, and getting people active. And, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd hedge a bet that CrossFit has done more to get more people active than most of the fitness, I'd say, trends um, have. So really cool stuff in terms of just, you know, what Sammy does as a career in working in the trenches, both with physicians and patients, and also this kind of functional fitness program through the CrossFit gym where they focus on activities that mimic, you know, your daily activities, your exercises that mimic your daily activities, and really just trying to get people fit and active again. And, you know, I really like talking to people in the industry like Sammy, you have that wealth of experience and being in the industry and working hands-on with so many people, you have the flexibility to be a little bit more progressive because we know research can be really, you know, painstakingly slow. So it was just cool to get Sammy's perspective on on how she built the the build program and what she does with Cancer Wellness for Life. So really cool chat with a great woman. If you're in the Kansas area and you're interested, you can check out Kansas well Cancer Wellness for Life or her build program. I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So sit back and enjoy the conversation and we'll catch you at the end. I love the work you're doing with Build and I love everything you're you're doing with Cancer Wellness for Life and working with patients and survivors. So I just want to get a picture of of everything you've done so far. And I know you've been in the field for quite some time. So why don't we start with giving us a little bit of a background in, in how you started in the field and what got your what got you interested in in working with cancer patient survivors? 
Yeah. And first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, I, this is obviously something that uh, excites me to talk about. So especially with somebody who believes uh, and understands what I do as well. Uh, I started uh, as a cancer exercise specialist in 2003. I'd moved to Kansas City uh, just because I found a job as a full-time personal trainer at a large health club. And I grew up in North Dakota. And so I went to college in Minneapolis, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And when I had an opportunity to work as a full-time professional in fitness, I jumped on it. And about three months into working at that large health club, I got a referral for a new client and I picked up the phone and called her and her name is Kim. And Kim is uh, still a big part of my fitness world. But I remember that first conversation and talking to her, she was about two years out of a triple negative breast cancer, which I had no idea what that meant. She was dealing with anxiety and depression and lymphedema. And again, words that I remember writing down and kind of looking up later. And she said to me, she says, I just need to exercise. I know it, you know, gain weight and I just need to work out. And so we forged ahead and I was like, great, show up. It'll be awesome. And she showed up with a compression garment. And I thought, what is that? And so I remember talking to her lymphedema therapist and trying to understand more about, you know, what we should and shouldn't do. And it really opened up my eyes to a population that absolutely needed to exercise. And so I moved forward in trying to find any bit of information I could. In 2005, there was a few cancer certifications that were out and starting. And so I, I got every credential certification that I could find. And it was really helpful to understand some of the words of, you know, chemotherapy induced neuropathy or what is lymphedema. But what I really struggled with and what I've focused on doing as a professional and, and helping with others is what do you do with that information? How does that really transfer into exercise and what does an exercise plan uh, look like? And so I've spent the last oh gosh, 14 years um, dedicating what I do every single day to making sure that we formulate exercise and activity plans that take into account cancer diagnosis and side effects, but are really about patient and survivor goals. And that's really what, to me, helps them be compliant and helps them be engaged is if we ask them what they want to do and then understand how to help get them there. Well, one of the things you were talking about there in terms of the cancer terminology is interesting to me because as you speak about lymphedema and chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, things like that, when you first start getting into this field, whether it's as a professional or even as a patient, your doctors and professionals will just throw these words at you. And it's it's honestly like learning a new language because you've got to, every time you see lymphedema, you're kind of going, what is that? I have to remind myself what that is. What is peripheral neuropathy? What does that work? And then as you start to learn that language, you get more comfortable with what those words mean and then you can actually use them in your daily practice. So whether it's as a professional in understanding what these terms mean, how they arise from treatment and how you can counteract them. And also as a patient in something like chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, what it is a concern, um, I think people can get quite afraid of of these terms that are being thrown around and by us being able to explain to them that this is what it is you can kind of take away a lot of that fear surrounding these terms right and i unfortunately when working in healthcare you know which is what i spend most of my time in now is what i tell people very much kind of the red light district the reason i say that is because when we bring a patient in the door we really 
take control of their life and they're not doing a lot of the things that they used to do. They may not have time. They may not have energy or we tell them not to, you know, if they're at risk of infection, we start warning them about what kind of diet they should, they should have, or they should avoid crowds and, and people given a cancer diagnosis, which is scary and everybody wonders they're going to die also is, you know, every other aspect of their life, then they're, they're scared about you know, should people come over? Should I not eat bacon? It, and it's so overwhelming for them. And unfortunately, medical care in traditional senses doesn't really put that green light back into activities. It's, um, it's we, we get focused on what we do clinically, and then we send our patients back, and then they struggle. They, they're like, I have no idea what I should even be doing anymore. I don't know what I should be eating anymore. And so, you know, it's interesting. Language is one thing, but then also just real life. And, and how do you take neuropathy and make sure they understand how is that going to affect their life and what can we do about it? And sometimes, you know, physicians say, well, you can't do anything about neuropathy. And my response is, well, you can improve balance training. And that would mean that my patients with severe neuropathy are at a less, um, lesser risk to fall. So that makes a huge difference, but definitely understanding it and making that bridge is really important. Yeah, exactly. And even the, the people, patients and, and survivors you work with will tell you as, as daunting as treatment is and as tough it is, as it is some of the hardest and most confusing times is that period as they transition into survivorship because during treatment they've had this team around them who've been telling them everything and anything they've got to do they're taking care of their treatment and they've had you know a support system around them that once they say you're good to go you're in remission or you're in survivorship that team disappears and they've Absolutely. no they've no source of authority telling them what to do they've no one that they can trust you know, right. and part of what I do when I when I work with Reach is I'll get emails, and literally the emails are like, I have this cancer and I had this treatment, and my doctor told me never to work out again, or I I don't. There's no one in the area that I think understands the treatment and some of the side effects. Um, so it's it, it's still a real big issue in these people transitioning to survivorship that just don't know what's out there as resources for them. Right, absolutely, and I think. You know, there's definitely studies that talk about, you know, the importance of exercise. We've seen for years now that safety and efficacy studies are are showing up and they're continuing. And I think you and I had a little, you know, Twitter exchange recently. It was like, that's a great, it's a great that there's another study about the safety of resistance training for breast cancer survivors. But I roll my eyes because honestly, we need to move past that in to helping breast cancer survivors do resistance training. You know, exactly. why... And I think we get really caught up in the cancer side of things. Um, you know, bone metastasis is another really challenging question. And providers constantly say to me, you know, should my patient with bone mets be doing resistance training? And my answer is, well, of course, because we know that that's going to help build good bone cells and that's going to help them stay stronger. And if they don't do anything and lose all their muscle tissue, and they fall, they will break something. And so it's interesting even to me in talking to our medical professionals that are highly trained and dedicated to the survival of their patients also kind of want to wrap them in this, you know, fluffy bubble wrap of don't do anything. And I, I know that's not good for patients. You know, that's not good for patients and patients, they know, but then they have no idea 
how to start and, you know, how really to get going. And I think the downside is we tell a lot of our patients just to walk. And I think that it's sometimes a cop out that, oh, walking is the safest thing. But again, with some of the side effects that a lot of our patients have, walking may not be the safest thing for them. And if they have a lot of neuropathy, honestly, walking around the block to me is one of the worst exercises I can give them because they're not going to feel comfortable. If they're weak, um, they're at a fall risk and they're not going to continue. So it's, it's really thinking more strategically from the exercise side of how to take care of cancer patients, you know, not looking from the cancer side first. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point you made about the idea of prescribing walking as a cop-out because I share some of the same frustrations, particularly with uh, some researchers who who kind of hide behind evidence-based research and say, you know, we've been doing this work for a long time, but the evidence just isn't there to suggest X. Um, and that is a little bit of a cop-out too because we understand for the large part a lot of the side effects of treatment we understand while there's certain site specific areas that we haven't figured out fully and um, we understand for the most part how powerful ex- exercise can be but people kind of generally want to either protect themselves or not kind of step outside their boundaries and us as researchers we know so much it's it's almost a responsibility for us to to use our knowledge to go beyond the guidelines you know we can't keep hiding behind the general guidelines of 150 minutes that means right. nothing to someone who to no. someone who, who doesn't know what exercise is that means absolutely nothing so we've got to push ourselves to to really go beyond the research and use our knowledge and experience to actually translate that into actionable items absolutely and that's not only what our patients need but what our physicians need you know there was just a recent study that came out that said, you know, pers- most participants um, or most patients know that exercise is good for them. And I think this was um, a study that came out. I think NCCN just came out with an article about it. And they, you know, it was like 95% of participants knew exercise was good during treatment. But, you know, they were looking to their physicians and expecting some recommendations from their physicians because that's who they feel is leading the charge on their medical care. And our physicians are like, I don't have that information or knowledge. And I think that that's absolutely relevant. I mean, it's like me trying to understand every chemotherapy and drug interaction. You know, I go talk to our pharmacist about it because I know that that's not my wheelhouse. And so I think the opportunity as, you know, a researcher on your side and somebody like me who's a little bit more on the front lines is helping educate our, you know, medical professionals on how to interpret this research really to make it tangible for our patients. I mean, why do we tell them to, you know, walk? Okay, I get it because you think, hey, anybody can walk, right? But why are we not really emphasizing maybe chair-based strength training or just simple core training? Because you know, we all know looking at a patient when they're sort of humped over and, you know, that sort of tired posture and they're sitting in this recliners getting chemotherapy, those muscles aren't doing the thing. And if, we aren't using muscle, you know, muscle will atrophy and that's in large part contributing to their fatigue. And so how do we use that exercise physiology knowledge and and what we know about traditional exercise prescription for that patient population? It's like, to me, it's like taking a deconditioned person 
who, you know, is coming off of working their butt off in an office for 20 years, eating terrible, you know, they're overweight, you know, or or even obese and have a, a ton of other issues and maybe high blood sugar. And they walk into a gym setting. What do we do with those patients, you know, or those, those people. And I, I don't, know why we don't do that with oncology why we're so scared before you we went live we were talking about some of the progressions that have made in the field and and how far it's come and i think one of the interesting ones is you know probably five ten years ago we were making that strong call and saying physicians need to be talking about exercise more they need to be prescribing exercise more and i think in the last two or three years we've started to kind of go it's not really the physician's responsibility. That's not their training. Their responsibility yep. or, the, or the hospital or the organization's responsibility is to get someone like us with right. the background and training in kinesiology and the understanding, you know, albeit surface level compared to a physician, uh, understanding of the treatments and the side effects and the ability to have that as a core team to where, as you said, you know, someone someone uh, contacted me last week with, with thyroid cancer my training is largely in breast and prostate, but I'll contact a thyroid oncologist and say, "Hey, what are the most specific? You know, what are some specific side effects related to thyroid cancer?" And having that communication and the, that collaborate collaboration is what we're calling for now, as opposed to five, six, ten years ago when we were saying it should be on the physicians. When really, it's just on us as a team. You bet. And I honestly believe in, um, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, so our company, which is the cancer wellness for life brand that I started earlier this year, my focus was not just on the front lines of taking care of cancer survivors. I mean, that's a big piece of what we do, but my focus is also in the healthcare environment. And so recently, um, earlier this year, we, we have a contract, um, at a large hospital system here in Kansas city and to develop that oncology wellness program. And one of the components of that is working, you know, side by side with physicians, spending a day with them as they see patients and follow up and helping them understand that when they're treating someone for pancreatic cancer and we're, you know, in that midst of chemo radiation and we're getting ready to send them to for a Whipple, what are we going to do in that four to six week window in helping them make those recommendations or make an appropriate referral to say an oncology rehab program or whatever that piece is. And so I don't think it's as much about trying to teach them new things because they get it. No physician I talk to has ever argued with me about the importance of exercise yeah. or they just don't. Yeah. And sometimes they'll kind of question, you know, oh yeah, we got multiple myeloma, you know, should we be doing resistance training or whatever that may be? And in some, you know, uh, some even exercise professionals, they get a little nervous. They're like, well, their bones are like glass. And I said, well, you know, okay, their bones are like glass. So if we let them sit around and they're a weaker, you know, glass then we're not helping them at all. And we're not helping them with quality. So the physicians get it and they understand it and they see their patients, they want better. But I think our job as professionals and where I love what I do every day is I can help them just make an appropriate, you know, recommendation or encouragement. It doesn't have to be super specific in an exercise program, but where does that referral, you know, where do we send them or what do we tell them? And so we've developed patient education, which is actually more about helping our providers give a patient tips on fatigue, but not necessarily feel like they have to spit all of those out on their own. It's, you know, just a supportive tool of, Hey, I know you're dealing with fatigue. Here's some wellness and some exercise and some nutrition strategies. And so that's an opportunity then for that patient then to feel, Oh, I have something I can do. 
and I should do this. And my doctor told me to do this. And so that's kind of the shift in healthcare where I think you and I have now gotten more bold in going in and saying, Hey, I know you can't tell the, you know, a patient what they should do for their exercise program, but let us help you with that. And they want that, but they need more of us, like a lot more hundreds, (laughs) hundreds. (laughs) And, uh, I, I want to dive into the cancer wellness, uh, cancer wellness for life organization because I think it's fascinating but I want to just touch on a a point you made there when you're talking about people being concerned that um, you know cancer patients bones are like glass and it's a really good point because whether it's uh, physicians or patients themselves or other professionals there's this misnomer that when we say strength training we're saying you know heavy squat heavy deadlift do you know a power clean and that's it's not the case when we say uh, strength training for rehab it can be really gentle it's body weight stuff it's safe it's mm-hmm. controlled and you know while you know it may not improve your your bone mineral density or your bone strength it certainly attenuates the loss so as you said even just preventing right. that loss is massive and kind of starting to educate people on this idea that it, we're not we're not putting these people through the ringer in terms of the exercise protocol you know it's it's very individual, just like it would be for anyone without cancer. There's people who are fitter who have cancer, and there's people who are much exactly. much worse off. And so while, while cancer is a big part of what we do, the general theme of exercise prescription stays with our appropriate screening. We, in, we individualize based on injuries, prior lifestyle, you know, current schedule, all that stuff. It all goes into it, so it's not necessarily... Well, they're weak and deconditioned. You know, we see a lot of weak and deconditioned people. It's just being able to understand what they're going through and how to modify exercise as opposed to not doing anything. Right. And I think that's exactly the point that we're all trying to push across is that, you know, it's that sedentary behavior that also leads to other things that are concerning, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, poor sleep that contribute to just our patients feeling unwell and really struggling, you know, down in that survivorship side where we're like, Hey, you're done. You're good. And they're like, but I don't feel good. And the world looks at them like, but you're done. You're good. Right. Your hair's back. And our survivors are struggling. And I think a lot of that struggle is because they don't feel, um, the physical strength and abilities that they used to, and they're just not sure what they should do. And so there's a couple of other, you know, underlying things. And again, we sort of brush the surface Oh, but you're good. And, and, but they don't feel good. And then they feel like they should feel good. Um, you know, it's interesting. We talking about the, the metastasis as well. And I think there was a study done, actually, I know this was done in Australia that looked at individual exercise programs. It was metastatic breast prostate just to the bone was the primary focus and really looking at, well, what would be the negative side effect of doing resistance training? And it, instead it showed that there was no negative side effect, no adverse events in this study because those patients had had those individual prescriptions with trained professionals. And I know that it improved, you know, their neuromuscular strength, their aerobic fitness, their general physical activity and their muscle mass. And all of those things then allow those patients with an incurable disease to live better. And that to me is the magic of what we do is that live better. Yeah. And it's, it's such a massive point when you talked about, uh, you know, people will ask us and say, well, why should they exercise? And we come back and say, well, why shouldn't they? What, like, what's the harm? What are the barriers? And if, if the barriers are, 
you know, the treatment schedule or the side effects of treatment, we know how to work around them. So while you may you may not see the value in exercise, um, you're not convincing us enough that they shouldn't exercise and that there's reasons enough to not do it. Exactly. And, you know, patients cite fatigue. And I get that. You know, we see it every day. Medications cause fatigue. Showing up to appointments cause fatigue. Just the emotional distress of having a diagnosis that you may die from causes fatigue. And so, you know, the studies are all across the board of, well, how many of our patients experience fatigue? I would say, honestly, in knowing patient care, and you probably will agree to this, at some point, I think 100% of our patients have some form of reported fatigue. Yeah. You know, whatever that's from. And a lot of that is contributed to physical deconditioning, you know, that sort of strength muscle loss that happens when they're not exercising. And a lot of our patients weren't exercising to begin with, much less resistance training. And so I don't know if you saw, I'm, I'm sure you did, but earlier this year, I think it was perhaps in March that uh, there was a study that came out in the JAMA Oncology Journal that showed that exercise was better than any drug for fatigue. And it should yeah. be prescribed as first line therapy. And it was equal to that psychological intervention, the cognitive behavioral therapy piece. Um, so I'm not discounting that because I know that that's also important for our patients. But I'm like, if we just teach them to move, it's something they can access quickly and even get those endorphins and feel like they're doing something and they don't need insurance, which is, of course, also amazing. But doesn't that study you and I were like, well, of course it does. But it was a big deal huge deal yeah and funny enough i was talking to uh, a buddy of mine keith who's up at laura's college and we were talking yesterday about this idea of translation and we are both kind of saying studies like that are phenomenal the i suppose the difficulty there is is we're talking to ourselves you and i will read mm -hmm. that and say yeah of course and the people who are bought in in exercise kind of go that makes sense and the people who aren't bought in on exercise or, or maybe apprehensive, they say, okay, well, you showed me that exercise is good for strength and for quality of life, and now it's good for fatigue. Now what? And so right. it's interesting that uh, those, those studies are so powerful, but it, then it comes back to beyond what it can do, how do we get that into the hospital and how can we actually use that information to, to get this moving? Because... You know, as long as this field is going to be alive, we're going to keep seeing improvements in strength, physical function, psychological outcomes, whatever it is. Now it's at the point where we need to bridge that gap. We need to take that and put it in there. And I think what part of what I love about the Cancer Wellness for Life and what you're doing is that you are you are actively working on this and talk about being on the front line. You're in a hospital setting. So let's talk a little bit about that because... Um, one, I understand the, the difficulty in in establishing relationships with physicians, oncologists, and, and hospitals. So talk about how that got started. How did you establish that you know, relationship or referral system, and, and what does your overall you know, goal and system look like? So back in 2010, um, one of the cancer centers here in town, that's a community-based cancer center, came at me and said, hey, you know, we, we're sending a lot of patients to you for that exercise program, um, back in, in early, my early part of the career or my, the early part of my career, I was able to secure some grant funding for a breast cancer exercise program. And, uh, they would send, you know, their patients to this program and it was great. And I loved it. But what I started to really see was that these were 
patients that were, you know, year or two out of a diagnosis and they were really struggling. And so it was a, a lot, um, for me, I kept looking at it like, why are we not getting them sooner? You know, these were patients that were asking and, and were concerned about, you know, weight gain and loss of muscle and other, other side effects. And so I kept going back to the physicians and that, that team specifically, I just had different relationships with those docs and kind of saying, Hey, I think you should send your people earlier. And so, um, back in, like I said, 2010, they came to me and they said, so we have an idea. And the idea was they wanted to develop a program that would be delivered in house. And so they said, would you come work for us? And at the time I'd been self-employed, you know, for seven years, I was like, mm, yeah, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. That just seems a little like different. And so they kind of incentivized me and, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I will never forget some of my first, um, patient consults. And, and I remember very specifically a, a very young, um, sarcoma patient and who was really, really struggling. Um, she had, lost her job due to just her lack of ability to work. She just was feeling physically deformed. She had a large sarcoma um, in her thigh and just really frustrated with life. And she's like, you know, she's single and she's worried about fertility and I'm really wanting her to exercise. And I go talk to her physician and I peek around the corner of his door and I do this gentle knock. And I was like, so this patient of yours, and I'm trying to ask permission. And he just looked at me and he said, my patients are too sexy. Me. He said, you just need to be patient. And I'm like, mm, okay. And I left. And like later that day, I walked back in his office and I said, you know, I kind of disagree with that statement. And he just looked at me and I said, okay, let's think about this. And I said, what if we do chair-based exercise? Like, what if I just get her some bands or some dumbbells? He's like, okay, but remember, you know, she's having a lot of balance issues and I'm worried if she falls. And I was like, I know, but let's just try it. And, you know, it was me being confident enough to say, I know this isn't what we normally do, but the possibility exists. And so that really grew and physicians had a lot of buy-in. And so we started bringing on-site education programs to that cancer center. And I started seeing patients and in individual consults and doctors would call me and say, Hey, can you see my patient? They have questions on exercise. And it was really a tremendous opportunity to live inside a cancer center and see patients from day one and start to change that mentality that we talk about exercise and, and even nutrition from the day of diagnosis. And that was so helpful for the patients. Um, and then as we rolled on, that cancer center had gotten acquired by a large NCI cancer center. And again, there I was seeing patients in what I would deem clinical practice. And so I had a schedule template and I would get referrals and I would spend four solid days a week seeing patients day after day. So on a busy day, I'd see 12 to 13 patients, which was awesome. And I was really able to help those patients see them come through for follow-up and it wasn't a billable service. Um, so it was a great incentive for the patients. But then I started to realize that in one of our larger centers, there was four to 450 patients walking in the door a day. And I was seeing on a good day, 15. Yeah. And that made me realize that I was, I'd gotten too narrow and I needed to take a step back out. And so, um, that's when cancer wellness for life started because I realized that I needed to help our medical providers and our clinical teams deliver this message and also to take care of themselves, which is another great opportunity that's come from being in a healthcare setting. And so when we started cancer wellness for life, you know, we really have shied away from 
me spending that time seeing those patients. And, and I still don't do it on a regular basis here. Um, we have brought a, a certified cancer exercise trainer on our team and she sees patients in a studio here in Kansas city and does all of those individual appoint- appointments and consults and program development and kind of takes care of that frontline. So I can spend my time working in this side in the healthcare side. And so we're starting to see again, you know, that bridge, and it might be a little shaky and it's not the most, you know, firm big bridge right now, but it's starting to happen that the medical providers are now, you know, hey Sammy, what class do you have? Do you have a class on fatigue? Or I need to send my patient to oncology rehab. Where do I send them? And so it's it's starting to shift and reteaching that. And that to me is where I want to spend my time and where I want to focus our energies on really changing healthcare for the better. And not um, coming in and having to say change drugs, but just supplementing what we're already doing really good, which is clinical care, but doing it better. As you, as you go to, to be, you know, this kind of leader for cancer wellness for life and you're delivering so many sessions or you're developing the program and infrastructure, do you miss some of that one-on-one hands-on time to quite, you almost have to take that sacrifice in the hands-on one-on-one work to, to kind of have a greater impact in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do. And so, um, because I didn't want to miss it completely. Uh, and I think you know about this. So back in September of last year, I decided to start a cancer survivor CrossFit class or functional training class, uh, sort of to fulfill, um, that piece for me a little bit and, and to make sure that I still had that frontline approach. And I love that. I love watching my cancer survivors, you know, get stronger and be so proud of themselves and come and tell me that, you know, they, not only are they getting stronger in the gym, but I got an email from somebody who she missed, um, class because she was working in her yard with her husband and she wasn't paying attention to the time. And so then her last comment, she said, but I helped move 30 bags of mulch. And she said, I couldn't have done that even a month ago. And I think that to me is what it's about. So I, I never want to lose that connection. Um, and so I try really hard to make sure I'm still involved in that. But, you know, you, as you know, you do get stretched thin, but it is very important to me to be mindful of why I do what I do every day. We'll spend a lot of our time doing data collection and working with participants, but we'll also spend a lot of time writing and trying to publish this research. And there are the times where I'm like, man, I just I really miss being up in front of a group mm-hmm. of patient survivors or I miss that one-on-one interaction where you, you're, you know, the, the research is great in progressing the field, but the, the, the hands-on, the one-on-one and that powerful impact you can have is, is so important to keep as well. Um, so, you know, with the Cancer Wellness for Life, essentially you're providing education to both p- patients and professionals or is it just groups of patient survivors on various uh, cancer related issues? No, it's definitely both. Um, we, you know, we really have a strong interest in, in staying in that healthcare side of things. Um, you know, every healthcare organization, even oncology nonprofits, whether it's, you know, organizations that support cancer centers, everyone kind of struggles with budget and it's hard to justify dollars, um, and, and basically labor for, for folks maybe like me, and so, and I get that, you know, I mean, I understand there's always, everything's always budget. And so we really want to look at how can we take what we know and sort of help other organizations develop something that fits what they do and, and maybe has uh, coverage in some of those gaps. And some of it is developing good patient education. 
and so that their nurses can provide something about fatigue while that patient is in chemotherapy and they're really struggling with fatigue. So not only is it that the doctor can say it, but maybe the clinical team that's seeing the patient come in, you know, week after week or on that three week cycle, that's kind of going down, will have a tool that they can access and say, Hey, you know, this, I know you're struggling with fatigue. Here's several things that, you know, you can do that are very tangible. And, and I think that also is really important for me. I mean, there's so many people going through cancer in our world and just going through treatments. And even though our metastatic or more aggressive disease patients are living longer, I don't feel that they're necessarily living better. And that kind of piece for me is where I want to be. And I love research. I love reading research, but I know um, that I would struggle if I just backed into that side as well. And I mean, I would definitely have the same experience that you experienced because you want to see the benefit. It's almost like watching someone light up when they're proud of what they can do. They can move differently, you know, whatever that may be for them, pick up a grandchild or go do their own grocery shopping. It's a big deal for our patients. I mean, is that a struggle for you as trying to, trying to uh, push for that funding to, you know, you know, the value of exercise, you know, the value of your program. Is that a constant battle for you where you're, you feel like you're all, almost always fighting to say we need funding for this type of thing? You know, I, I think it's not as big of a battle as I thought it would be. And I think part of it is because through having developed a company of, you know, the cancer wellness for life model can kind of fit into anywhere. So although right now I'm working on a much larger project, I know that we have the ability to say help a smaller cancer center, um, or, you know, a different organization with whatever their niche is and can kind of build that. And so I think that's one reason that we decided to develop this company. Um, and I'm really fortunate. My husband is very great with the technology side of everything and is good at sort of putting the, some of these products together. So I can kind of focus on the vision and the idea and the relationships. And he is my implementation guy. Um, so we're really lucky in that piece. Um, so we can kind of fit what organizations need without saying, you know, this is exactly what the product looks like. Um, we've been recently approached to look at running a couple of clinical trials and different organizations have said, Hey, you know, one is looking at metastatic breast cancer and looking at that functional fitness piece because a couple of years ago, a study came out that showed that exercise had no benefit on health related quality of life for metastatic breast cancer. And that study made me crazy. Because I know, and I called um, the exercise physiologist on the study. I know her. And I said, what did you guys do? And she was like, I said, did you guys have him walk? And, and you know, her response was, yes, well, we let him get in the pool too. You know, or the, so yes, we had them walk, but they also got into the pool and maybe did some water aerobics or water walking. And I thought, well, yeah, they're not building any muscle. And so as much as I think it was great that those patients exercised, how disappointing and how disappointing for those patients to feel like it's made no difference. And I think that it wasn't that it didn't make a difference. I don't think we perhaps suggested the right form of exercise and maybe looked at really the right outcome. So it wasn't a bad study, but the interpretation of that data, people in my doctors came to me and they said, Seema, did you see this study? No benefit. Well, what should we tell our patients? I'm like, Oh, just ignore it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. You know, but it, it was just a little bit too narrow, perhaps, um, as well. So anyway, that's a, a slight digression, but so, you and I know. 
Go no, ahead. Yeah, note to self. Just don't publish anything negative or I'll be getting a phone call from Sammy. <laughs> what did you do? I, you know, I think for me, I, I was just sort of disappointed. I think um, metastatic breast is a population that has a lot of needs. And um, I, I was just extremely disappointed that we maybe could have done a better job for those patients. Again, it's a live well issue. You know, we can keep those patients alive for a really long time. Um, but if they're not living well and they're struggling, you know, what are, what are we doing? You know, why are we missing it? Um, I'm involved with a couple of like Facebook private groups that I've had friends ask me to help with that are metastatic breast and one's a young women's group. And these young women dealing with stage four disease really struggle trying to work and trying to be, uh, you know, a mom in a lot of cases and a wife, and they just need to have very concise recommendations of, I can't get to the gym and you know what? I don't have a lot of time. What's one thing I can do at home and to help me. And I think that for me drives me much more than, you know, that study of walking, to be honest. Yeah. And, and that reminds you the point I was going to talk about earlier, because as you're talking about living well versus struggling, um, we see these statistics all the time in the five-year survival rate has improved across almost all cancers. And, uh, you know, cancer societies, and they should be, are very proud of that statistic. But the five-year survival rate and the 10-year survival, survival rate says absolutely nothing about the quality of survival. And as you said, yeah. uh, surviving is great. But if you're bedridden and you're miserable and, you know, you're, you've no physical function, you've no independence, you know, how, how much quality of life is there? And so we're primarily concerned with not just surviving, but can you survive well? Can you live well? Can you be healthy? And can you still play with your kids and grandkids and, and be independent for longer as opposed to just this kind of statistic of five-year survival? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I know for you and I, that's what motivates us every day. And I, you know, I get, I get up every morning and I'm, I mean, I'm excited to do what I do because I see the impact it makes. And to me, you know, that living life piece is just so important to all of us. And cancer takes that away from so many people. And if we can just give them something to help them live better, and you, you know, you watch people fight and you watch people say, I'm going to do anything that I have to do to beat this. And they'll just do drug after drug and, you know, whatever medication we throw at them. And I know our clinicians, you know, our physicians, they want to do whatever it takes, but it isn't always just a drug issue. You know, it, and, and if we just keep beating people up with drugs, they really lose a lot of their function because they have so many side effects. And I've talked to some friends of mine in pharma and I keep saying, you know, maybe you guys should add, you know, exercise into some of these clinical trials and, and making sure that there's a, you know, an arm of your group that a patient on a clinical trial can call a trained exercise specialist in oncology, whatever that may be rehab or exercise phys or a personal trainer and just ask questions because honestly, I think those patients would do better. And you know, I know that's a little outside the box, um, but that tends to just be me. <laughs> I'm not really afraid to be outside the box, but to me, that's where we can really make a difference and a uh, huge difference. It's interesting you talk about the pharma because when we, so we work very closely with the medical staff here at Ohio State. And every time we want to do a study, we have to present to the oncology board. So it's a, it's a panel of oncologists from all across different cancer sites. And 
they will present these different pharmacological studies and are part of multi-site studies from all across the country and they go down the list and then we're kind of saying well we need a few patients for an exercise trial and honestly the 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 frustration there is that we unfortunately get the trickle down from all of those trials because mm -hmm. they're so well funded and they are this national multi-site trial that they they get priority over patients so they're saying yeah you can you can do your exercise trial but it's it's everyone who's left you know what i mean so right. they're, they're concerned about even competing when as you said why not put them together see what your right. your drug does with exercise see what it does without but uh that's that's another five-hour podcast of you just <laughs> going on about that i was gonna say you know what i i totally agree and you know what i tell people i said my one golden rule in life is unless you ask it's always a no and so one thing that I've done over the last 14 years of my career is I just ask questions and throw out ideas and sometimes they fall flat and other times you can see people think about it. And I tell myself, if I keep getting people to ponder it, somebody's going to get it that can actually make change, right? Like you and I. So I definitely think you should still mention it. That's just my two cents. I would say that to anybody <laughs> listening, just ask, you never know, you know, <laughs> absolutely. So I want to make sure I talk about the BUILD program because I think it's it's a fascinating program and, and uh, as we talked about before we went live, there can be a lot of misnomers about CrossFit in general. So uh, let's talk about a little bit about the program. It's in a CrossFit gym in Kansas, right? Yes, we're in Kansas City. Yeah, either way. Um, we, uh, we run a dedicated uh, – currently we run in eight-week sessions. We may kind of change that here in the fall because we're at capacity, which is – phenomenal. Um, but right now we enroll our folks in an eight week session and they can come either twice a week, um, three times a week, or we also have just a Saturday only option just because Kansas City's a couple million people. And so one of the reasons we do that is because CrossFit, although known to be scary in some respects of what we see on the CrossFit games, um, is very well known for its community and the power of the community. And so when we put build together, uh, I had, we've been doing CrossFit as a family, my husband and myself, and, uh, we have a 15 year old now who has been doing CrossFit for, since he was 13. And we joined this CrossFit gym and we had come from a different one and we're just looking for a good gym that made sense to us and that had good coaching. And after I was there for about six months, I approached the owner and I said, Hey, I have an idea. And, uh, Matt was so open-minded to the idea of starting a program. And I think really recognized my knowledge in, um, being a cancer exercise trainer for a long time. And I have my CrossFit level one. So I, I've been trained through the CrossFit course. Um, and I wanted to start this program and we opened up the doors to signing people up last fall. And I will never forget on day one that I had them all do body weight box squats. Um, they didn't know how to squat, not a one of them. And we started to do some things like supine rows, which, you know, is the version of a pull-up for those of us that can't do pull-ups. And so it's, you know, that nice, tight, straight line position, but having to learn the same body position, but adjusting to an individual strength. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like this is really hard for my, my folks. Um, but I realized that the more that we did these functional movements, you know, movements that there are a version of picking something up heavy from the floor or, you know, getting on in and out of a chair, climbing stairs, putting something fully overhead, having good 
core muscles, as we kind of talked about earlier, you, you see the power of that movement. I love that style of movement. To me, it just made sense for a survivor. Um, but I tell everybody, we don't clean and jerk. Uh, we don't snatch. We don't do overhead squats. We don't do kipping. I mean, I'm not saying my athletes could never do that, but to me, that isn't what they need right now. They just need to learn to move better. You kind of hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about uh, supine rows and squats and things that mimic activities of daily living. Um, the improvements in strength and physical function and body composition are great, and uh, we really promote them and we're excited about them. But as you said, the, the goal is to improve your day-to-day life. You know what I mean? Like they, these aren't people who are going to bodybuilding competitions. They're not going to. Uh, well, they may take shirtless selfies on Instagrams. <laughs> sure. But yeah. uh, the the goal is to, as you said, like, can you pick up your kids and play with them? Can you take the laundry mm-hmm. up and down the stairs? And when people are that deconditioned, as you said, being able to carry thirty bags of mulch across the lawn is massive yeah. for them. And that's yeah. the power of of exercise. And I think the 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 real kind of the functional aspect in trying to mimic those activities they live in from the build program is huge. I think, and I think, you know, we talked about this and I think that everybody, when they hear me say this, I get a lot of raised eyebrows when I say that I have a CrossFit class for cancer survivors. And I'm proud of that. I mean, sometimes we call it functional fitness because people are nervous, but it's basically CrossFit, you know, at that level. And so I realize that there's a huge power in CrossFit as an exercise modality. I know I feel it. I'm not a competitive CrossFitter in the, you know, maybe what people would think is, you know, a competitor. Like I'm never going to go to like regionals. I don't really worry about the games, but I go in there and I work really hard because I also need it. You know, I want to stay strong. I want to feel fit. Um, I want to be able to move better as I age, but I'm not, you know, training three hours a day. And actually one of the reasons I like what I do is because I can get it done in less time that, you know, functional fitness. I like the variety. So as I experience that and start to see body composition changes, you know, as I'm in my late thirties and turning 40, I realize how powerful that is in my busy schedule and how much better I move when I start going through those movement patterns. When I was doing triathlons, I worked out so much more per week because I had to do all the training. And then I was trying to stay, keep some muscle mass on. And what I realized when I did my last race and I did a half Ironman is I was getting slower towards race day because I was starting to lose muscle mass. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh my gosh, what are you doing? But you know, here I am in this training program that somebody told me I needed to do and I should bring fit. And I tell people if I were to race all over, I would never do it that way because I was only training certain muscles. And so it's maybe a different version of say walking. If all you're doing is walking every day and you're maybe walking with weak core, your shoulders aren't back, you don't have good muscle, um, you know, stability even, yeah, you're walking, but you're really not going to feel stronger. You're not going to be able to move mulch. You're just not. Exactly. And to in, in defense, I suppose, in, in relation to that, the criticism that CrossFit often faces, and I'll hold my hand up, I'd say six, seven years ago, I would have been one of those people at the forefront saying, you know, it's unsafe, it's not regulated, this, that, and the other. And I don't think any organization has responded as well to criticism as CrossFit does. Because every time you see something come up and say, you know, well, this needs to be improved, they say, okay, we'll improve it. 
you know it, it's right. just a consistent improvement in the quality of the programming the level required of the instructors and just like any you know whether it's high school football whether it's personal training whether mm-hmm. it's group fitness you will have crappy coaches and yeah you know crappy people that don't understand what they're doing prescribing right. you know crappy exercise but you'll also have really solid instructors and i think that one of the things that continues to impress me about crossfit aside from just a massive emphasis on community and it's a family is that they continuously go this is what you think of us okay we'll improve it to the point where they're just trying to they're going to eradicate all criticism you know there's always going to be that fear of high intensity exercise to fatigue and risk of injury um but there i mean there's no organization that's doing a better job of, of trying to address all those so i think it's really it's been really interesting to watch the improvement over the last four or five years in that uh, the CrossFit world. I absolutely agree. And honestly, I think any sport when done incorrectly and done without, you know, mindful practice, whether it's bodybuilding or, um, just, you know, aerobic training or triathlons has, you know, ability to get injured. I think we get so caught up in that. Sometimes I do think for people, um, I think for every single build athlete that walked in the door, the very first time, you know, that deer in headlights sort of dart across the main floor over to our little dedicated space. Um, they were like, oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> but you know, you just see them. It's that look, you know, it's, it's like, oh, and we joke, you know, when we start classes, I kind of go through the you know reminders of I've got new people. Hey, you know, I, I suggest before we start, we run right alongside a CrossFit class. You know, they run at 445 and we run it at 445. And, um, so I just remind them, Hey, just to make it easier for you, I'd suggest you bring your over here. So you don't feel like Frogger, you know, <laughs> and just, you know, so you, you're more comfortable and, but the community piece is so phenomenal. Um, uh, one of our CrossFit build athletes, um, her name is Denise and, and I've talked about her and I think you might be familiar with me talking about her from another podcast. She's my two-time pancreatic cancer survivor, uh, is our athlete of the month. And it is so cool. This just actually went up last night. Um, and as we were finishing up and I coach, and then I come over and take a class and some of the folks in my class were like, who is this again? And, and what's her story? And I'm telling them her story. And they're like, she has pancreatic cancer. I'm like, uh-huh. They're like, for the second time, I'm like, uh-huh. And she's here in build. And I'm like, Oh yeah. And her bench today was like 40 pounds, you know? And they're like, wow, it's awesome. And Denise is in her early sixties and she's maybe we got her up to 105 pounds, you know, phenomenal, amazing. And what's interesting. One of the measurements we do, we are very strategic when we, um, do our build sessions. And one of the things that we want to know is outcomes. I mean, I, I think that's very important. So we do things like fatigue, depression, sleep, um, we don't do quality of life uh, specific, but I try to kind of roll that into how quality of life is. But then we also do CrossFit measurements. We do the CrossFit baseline. And I talk to them about how that compares to other athletes. And again, we do supine rows um, versus, you know, any other type of pull-up. So we can also keep it standard. And we make sure that they can complete those movements. They may squat to a box. They may squat to a medicine ball. But that's a very good functional measurement of their fitness. And this last session, we started doing body composition. And I'm a little bit like bummed that we haven't had this since last September because a lot of my athletes have stuck with me that long. 
But Denise, as an example, went through a severe bout of just having a lot of diarrhea. Nobody could figure out what was going on. And so she lost quite a bit of weight. The doctors are really concerned about weight loss. Well, she did her body composition last night. And in eight weeks, she has lost about two and a half pounds. However, she's gained two and a half pounds of muscle and she's lost all body fat. So she was a little bit, even in her small body fat was higher because her muscle mass was down, but her muscle mass is coming. So she's a leaner, healthier, stronger package. And that was awesome to see. And so of course she was like, can you summarize that? Because I'm going to the doctor tomorrow and I need to show them that. And absolutely. Here you go. It's just really amazing to see. Here's a woman who spent six months on chemotherapy the whole time she's been in build. And we just did radiation on her um, earlier this spring. And she said, I feel the best that I've felt in a year and, you know, living with pancreatic cancer. It's amazing. When people look to, to, to join build, um, what, what does the screening process look like? I know you talked a little bit about the baseline and the outcomes. Um, can you touch mm-hmm. a little bit on like someone contacts you for build, what do they go through in terms of screening? And then as you're going through this, are there any off the top of your head, just standard modifications that you've seen kind of consistently come up in terms of exercise? Uh, so the screening process for us is we just uh, get do as much intake as we can about not only just basic cancer, um, making sure we understand if they've had you know pelvic radiation or a surgery, um, they've had breast reconstruction or whatever that may be, understanding their disease and any side effects they may be experiencing. So we can make sure to address them. So as an example, going back to Denise, she still struggles with neuropathy in her hands and feet. And so um, one of the things that she has found is she needs to wear gloves, even here in the hot summer. So she'll be in a tank top, but she, those gloves just make her holding a bar or a um, kettlebell more comfortable. Um, Also, anybody that has neuropathy in their feet, we have like airdyne bikes you'll see traditionally in a CrossFit gym. All of my athletes, I put on the rowers. And the reason why is because I found that I can adjust um, their uh, tension. I can, you know, adjust how hard they work, but also a lot of them have weakness and balance and a lot of them have neuropathy. And if I can lock their feet in, they're just much safer. And so that's actually something that if I know they have neuropathy, I would never put them on a bike because I can't really feel their feet as those pedals are spinning around. So that's something that we do. Um, I currently do the majority of the intakes for all of the build participants. We have a coach that's helping me and so she'll eventually start with that. Um, but all of the coaches at the Hill are pretty familiar with our athletes and are good at answering questions. As far as modifications, I think the biggest thing for us is we stick very basic. So we do back squats. Um, sometimes we do back squat with a PVC. Sometimes we do back squat with, you know, the we use the training bars pretty much in our class or sometimes the 35s. But I like a back squat because it, it really forces them to use and engage their core. And so I want them to learn how to squat correctly. And so I will give them the PVC and not have them squat as low until I can get that depth. So I think the modifications that I do is I think very, very simple kettlebell swings. We never go above parallel. We only do Russian. And we had, we had a group come in, um, and they were riding across the country for one of the, for the almond young adult cancer fund. And they all came in to build. And one of the the ladies was like, Hey, so here's a kettlebell swing. It's a full kettlebell swing. I'm like, Oh, we only do, 
you know, Russian here. And she's like, oh, great. She's like, I don't really like doing those anyway. And part of me thinks, you know, why, why would you go overhead? You know, if a lot of my folks have a hard time with just full extension, um, you know, I think other than that, we just think about, um, making sure that our athletes see their progression. So we're very mindful that we gather a lot of data of, you know, what is their back squat weight? So when they come in the next time they can see, Hey, I started at, you know, the 15 pound training bar and now I'm able to do, you know, 25 pounds. And I'm also using a box that's on a lower level. So I think that for any athlete is really important. They, they want to know how they're doing and it's, it's very, um, specific. They, they want to know exactly what my weight difference is and they like their body composition, but I think it's more about what they can accomplish. Yeah. And I, I love that about the, the back swap, because I think there can be, uh, almost a fear of free weight exercises and something when you mention a back squat, they go, I, a back squat with a bar. I, I can't do that. And you, t- <laughs> yeah. you talk about that power when they realize that they can, and they go from an air squat or even a chair squat to an air squat, to a, a barbell yeah. squat. And um, again, it comes back to this idea that we're not throwing you in at the deep end straight away. It is tailored to where you're at right now, and we'll get you there. You know, it's not it's not your starting goal, but maybe it's the end goal. Exactly. And, you know, they realize and they appreciate that we're meeting them where they are. And I think that, for me and, and where I, I'm so fortunate to have the knowledge on both sides of cancer and exercise that I can put that, that piece in so quickly. Um, but again, I don't think somebody even in the CrossFit community has to have all of the oncology knowledge because you're just watching people move. And so it's really, for me, it just makes it easier because I kind of know immediately what I'm probably going to have a concern with. Um, so it's maybe a little quicker, but for somebody that in our coaching staff, even watching them coach just general athletes that have been sedentary, it's really no different. I mean, it's, it's about the right programming. And like we talked about, not every CrossFit gym does that. And not every CrossFit gym wants to do that. I guarantee there are people that want nothing to do with cancer survivors unless they're fit. And that's fine. But for a lot of people that are interested in see the, this, piece of how you can take functional fitness and really change how someone lives. I don't think they're as far off as what they think. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's knowing what to look for and just watching people move. And I think that's the power of what CrossFit has developed. I love that. And come here, listen, Sammy, I won't take up much of your time because I probably made you late for all your subsequent (laughs) meetings as you're, as you're kind of finishing up, you know, you've a wealth of experience in this area. Um, any any advice for one, a professional looking to get started in the area of exercise oncology and two, any advice for a patient or survivor who might be listening, who is maybe apprehensive about starting or even wants to start. And what does that look like? So I think for a professional, I do think you, you need to have some training and credentialing just because you need to understand the language. So getting the cancer exercise certification, um, to me is, is important. And it shows that you're dedicated to what you do. Um, and, and you can look at that multiple ways. I mean, a lot of my friends in the physical therapy, occupational therapy will get the oncology rehab piece versus just the physical exercise piece. So that's always my recommendation. My next step is, you know, partner with your medical professionals and, you know, sit side by side with them, start to hear what they hear 
and look for solutions to those concerns. I think that, you know, is, is a great thing. Developing relationships with medical partners is key because they are looking for places to send their patients. Um, I definitely would say, look for somebody that has the experience if you can find it or use a resource like, you know, our program with cancer wellness for life, like to help with a program to get started and then taking it into your exercise setting. Um, we do have a few clients from any, you know, around the country that, um, are looking for some guidelines and recommendations to get started. And they would take those into maybe an individual in their community to help deliver those. But I think for most patients, I would tell them just to get started and, you know, talk to your physician, make sure there's nothing you are, are missing. Is there any side effects that I should be worried about from any maybe medications, you know, dizziness or anything that's concerning, but really starting to exercise is really the most important step. I feel that for most patients, finding a buddy to go with them, whether that's a spouse, a friend, you know, if you have a child or whoever and telling them, Hey, I really want to exercise. I need to make sure I'm doing aerobic and strength and some core. Will you be my accountability buddy? Maybe try a class with me. I think that's the first step. Um, there's a lot of research that, you know, shows again, benefit, but there's very, very few things that provide individual prescription. And I think we're going to have to be creative for the next three or four years to really deliver that. And so I think it's helpful um, to have good basics and talk to professionals to help to find that individual prescription. I love that. And I'll just piggyback a little point off that. And, and as patients or survivors are thinking about exercise, your side effects to treatment are not necessarily barriers to exercise. More, they're just things to consider to work around while you're exercising. And knowing that is massive. Um, so listen, Sammy, again, thanks so much. It's been, it's been a great chat, and I love everything you're doing out there in, in Kansas, Kansas City. Um, yes, that's okay. <laughs> I, now, this is, my, this is my geography. Is Kansas City in Kansas? So Kansas City is in Kansas and Missouri. Um, I technically live on the Kansas side, but Build is in the Missouri side, and my hospitals are on both. So wait, so this, this, city is in, <laughs> this city is in two different states? Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> So when I first moved here, I remember saying to somebody, yeah, moving to Kansas City. And they said the same thing to me. What side? I'm like, I don't know, Kansas. <laughs> but it technically, I cross over to Missouri um, pretty much every day because, you know, again, Build is in Missouri. So I work out in a gym in Missouri. Um, and then we live in the Kansas side. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Mind blown. Well, okay. Yeah. okay, so if people are in Kansas or Missouri, um, or anywhere, where can people find you, find out about what, it, what you're doing and the Cancer Wellness for Life, you know, in general? Uh, so cancerwellnessforlife.com is our primary website um, where we have everything that we, we do. Um, our program right now is at CrossFit Memorial Hill. So that's just their name.com slash build. So that's about the build program. Um, we also have, um, I have a Facebook page that I'm starting for cancer wellness for life. And so we'll have that up and running here probably this weekend. So people can like us there. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at cancer wellness for life. We post a lot of build pictures there. So that's really a lot about build. Um, and then probably more the medical side of me is on Twitter, which my handle there is be well with Sammy and that's spelled S A M I. 
I love that and I'll stick all of those links in the in the show notes as well and listen Sammy I can't thank you enough again for, for having a chat with us today and I'll, I'll let you get off to the, to the rest <laughs> of your meetings awesome thanks for having me